Hey, Tyson here. We got a jam-packed episode of the I-5 Corridor coming up. Uh, Aiden and I take a look at the start of the Portland Trailblazers season. They're tipping off tonight. Then Oregon at midseason. The Ducks are 5-1, and one, but eh, the mess at Washington State with Nick Rolovich. And then Seth Wickersham from ESPN stops by. He's the author of the new book, It's Better to Be Feared, The New England Patriots Dynasty in the Pursuit of Greatness. Greatness. Uh, some really great stories about Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, and for Oregon State fans, a look at Mike Riley's near miss at being a part of all of that. So that's coming up on this episode of the I-5 Corridor, but also please check out the I-5 Corridor online at i5corridor.substack.com. All right, let's go. You're listening to the I-5 Corridor. Hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider. And Aiden, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. It's the best time of the year. I know uh, baseball fans will love it too. That's not really my thing, but uh, <laughs> we got college football, NFL in full swing, and NBA coming back. So most of, most of my nights after work are going to be uh, filled up with sports. Now, are, are are, are you just not a baseball guy because there's not really any Portland attachment? Like if the, if the Mariners were good, do you think you would have, uh, you would have developed a little bit more of a, a, a care factor there? Uh, probably not. I've just never really been able to get into it as a sport. I'll, I'll go watch a game live, but really a lot of my friends are baseball players and they've tried to get me to watch it, yeah. but I just can't sit down and watch an entire game and get into it. And and that's completely fair. I, I love the sport. I, I'll watch most Mariners games if they're on, but I, I will not blame anyone for not being into that. <laughs> it's it's just three three hours this day and age is, is a tough sell if, if, if you're not passionate about it. But for basketball, you have to be pretty excited about the Blazers starting up. Uh, they have new coach in Chauncey Billups. They added some depth uh, to the rotation. And then you had Damian Lillard who came out this week and really kind of quieted the flames on uh, all the drama this summer of, of him potentially leaving town, telling media earlier this week. I don't expect all times to be great times. Adversity is going to hit. There's going to be some tough times, he said. So if the season starts off rocky or if it starts off in a struggle, I wouldn't be happy about it. Nobody would. But I'm not going to jump ship or bail out when that happens. So, I mean, me leaving Portland is the easy thing and popular thing to say, but it's not going to happen. So, Aiden, as a resident Blazers fan of this podcast, that's got to make you feel pretty good, right? Yeah, it definitely does. And it's a really nice thing to hear him say that because it, it kind of feels like that's a return to what his personality has been over the last however many years um, when asked about his future with the Blazers. And I know in, in some ways he kind of has to say that, but uh, just to hear him hear that he's all in with the season coming up, you know, he's got a coach he wants, he's confident. The organization is willing to make the moves to be put in a position to win. So um, definitely puts me at ease a little bit. His his agent's got to hate it when he says that stuff, right? Because I feel like that's what's what put him in a hole with Portland to begin with. I mean, like the whole thing this summer was so shocking with him potentially wanting to leave because Dame's been pretty outright and saying that like he wants to be in Portland his entire career. Like if I'm his agent, I just go like, Damien, quit putting like like finality to all of these things. Just let it play out a little bit. Yeah, well, it could be worse. It could be Ben Simmons. <laughs> oh my God, what a, what a mess that is today! And, it, and it's so funny because like, I, I think there there were common kind of trade thoughts maybe even a year ago of like maybe the Blazers could flip McCollum for Simmons, but like at this point, 
Like, there's no way that Simmons Simmons has more value than McCollum. I'd, I'd rather have CJ on my team. Yeah, 100%. And I, it's funny with with him getting sent home from practice today and all this stuff with how he's acting. Like, he's not only hurting the franchise, but I think he's definitely hurting himself in the future. I don't think there's a lot of teams who are going to look at the way he's acting now and, and be encouraged because the last thing you want to do is get a guy like Simmons, give him a big contract, and then if – things don't work out for him in the organization to just quit on him like he has in Philly. I, I mean, it would be kind of fitting, though. Uh, so at, at uh, Philadelphia practice today, he got kicked out after coach Doc Rivers asked them to uh, participate in a defensive drill, and uh, that was the straw that broke the back. So it, it would be fitting if he came over to Portland because uh, traditionally for the last decade, they haven't done a whole lot of defense, and that's a bad joke. We are going to move on. Aiden, what do you think about the Oregon Ducks? They're at midseason. I, they won against Cal Saturday. It was another one of those games where you look at it and go, "That's the top ten team in the country." I don't, I don't know, but um, I want to get someone's perspective outside of my own my own little brain and world here because I, I watched that game on Saturday and just again thought that that's an offense that's going to have some issues going forward. But I, again, they are five and one. They're the number one team or the number ten team in the country. Um, how, how did you feel coming out of that one? Just like after a lot of games this year, I feel really conflicted. And I think that something that a lot of the fan base is struggling with is leveling their expectations with the product Oregon's put on the field. And I think the Ohio state win early in the year was a great moment for the program, but I really think that caused a lot of people to jump the gun and and put Oregon maybe a little bit further along in the process of building a program than they actually are. So I think that it's a team with a lot of talent and I think they're doing a lot of good things, but until they're able to show that they can play at a high level for an entire game, let alone multiple games, I think we kind of just need to bring our expectations down a little bit as they progress. Yeah, it's uh, it's such a tough one to balance because again, we you and I were just talking before this, and they have they have the type of players on the team that would make you think this is like a win now mentality. I mean, we saw what Kayvon Thibodeau did in, in the fourth quarter of that game there, and, and where he looked like, I mean, that might have been the most dominating stretch of football from one player that I've ever seen from like on Watson's turf before, and we've covered a lot of really good players there, but. Um, you know, between between the progress the offensive line is making and, and just whatever is happening at the quarterback position and behind Brown, um, it, it just seems like they're still building towards something. But it's uh, I, I guess this is kind of what happens when you get some of these like super elite level prospects is, um, you know, they don't all necessarily hit at, at the same time like you would hope so when uh, you're going through the list in February of, of, of the commits that are coming in. Yeah, and I also think it's been a weird year statistically. So I think at the quarterback position on the offense as a whole, there've been a lot of games where you look at the box score, like Oregon put up for over 450 total yards against Cal. That's certainly not a bad number, only 24 points. You hope that it would be more, but Anthony Brown had his best statistical game uh, as a quarterback which I didn't realize until after the game, but in the stands at the time, I was, I was looking at him just like, this is, this feels like it's bogging down the offense. 
feels like they're really struggling to to get key conversions they need to get and outside of a huge performance from Travis Dye I thought things were really slow at times where where does your mind go as um I mean obviously you're seeing that this it doesn't seem to be uh, as efficient as as you would like um and then you know you're in the stands and essentially like what do you think when the boos start ringing out because I, I know as a former player you probably hate to hear that um but that was that was a pretty overwhelming aspect of of the game on saturday i i don't think i've heard Otson like that maybe since 2016 during the washington game or something like that yeah you hate to hear people boo and especially and like i was saying before i think that really speaks to how spoiled the fan base has been and how high those expectations are. Cause if you zoom out, we're a top 10 team, you know, we're five and one, there have been some struggles, but I, I think it's a bit ridiculous that it got to that point. But I, I think people are just, they're frustrated at, at looking at this team and looking what it could be and just, just feeling like maybe he's not the guy to take them there. What do you think the, year in and year out expectations should be because um, I'm I'm a little mixed on that because on on one hand uh, you know you can obviously see that they're building towards something but it seems like every other it seems like every year that they have success Chris Paul's able to also parlay that into a contract extension to get to get paid more I mean there's so much money that's been infused to this thing like like where where should the acceptable level of expectation be for a season for this program I mean, I think Oregon's at a point where they really should be at the end of the season competing for a conference championship. And I don't think you can quite put them on the level of, of the Clemson's, the Ohio State's, the Alabama's, the Georgia's, who are those perennial top five teams. But you can right. kind of put them in that next tier um, of maybe, you know, knocking on the door to slip into the playoff in a good year. But but definitely competing to win the Pac-12 and, and playing in a Rose Bowl is... I think well, if, if, well if, if that's the case then like I think that they're doing fine I mean like it's you're gonna have years where your quarterback situation doesn't work out as planned I mean you can look at Oklahoma for example number one right there between what happened with Spencer Rattler and Caleb Williams coming in uh, but right now the Ducks are having one of those years where it's just it's just an odd year for the quarterbacks and they're still right there in contention so I, I do think that's something that has to be noted um, and that's e even in my, my game story from Saturday, which I, 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 I wouldn't say was negative towards Anthony Brown, but it was, it was definitely pointing out, you know, the inefficiencies of that offense. But the one thing that you do have to give this team and especially that player credit for is like, they battle like, like Anthony Brown's a gamer. Like, like he doesn't take any plays off. Like he, he's going to be inconsistent, but I, I actually do feel pretty good about him in the fourth quarter. Cause I, I think uh, maybe almost to his detriment that that he's going to put that all on his shoulders and, and and try to make plays like like I'm really into him as a competitor. It's just it's just the stuff that leads up to it that that seems to be in question right now. Yeah, I think a lot of the frustration um, that's taking place from the fan base is more so about how we're getting there rather than the final results. Like let's say right. let's say Oregon finishes the season. Um, with a couple losses, um, they don't make it to the Pac-12 championship game. They get a bowl win. You know, you look at it, a, a two or three loss season is, is a really good season for most programs. And 
even for Oregon, it's a good season. But I think that fans are used to in the past seeing those Oregon teams that maybe have two or three losses come out and jump on a Cal or an Arizona and not get right. close. And that, you know, maybe they have blowout wins in half their games. They win a few tough ones. And then there's a game on the road somewhere that doesn't go their way. But I, I think it's just the fact that it feels like Oregon could have lost a lot of their games. Right. That's a bit worse. And when you're talking about expectations, I, I think a lot of it too is we do have to take into account the Justin Herbert factor in all this. Like, yes, the Ducks won the Rose Bowl in Mario Cristobal's second season, but that was also with what we're seeing now was a potential once-in-a-generation type quarterback. And that's not to knock at all what Cristobal has built and the progress that he made through that, but it's, you know, when you go from that to uh, trying to find your next guy, like obviously some things might take a step back. So, um yeah, I, I, I know I know Oregon fans really want them to pull the Ty Thompson switch and see what's going on there, especially with seeing how successful that it happened in, in Oklahoma. But, you know, just not not all freshmen are ready to go right away. And I, I don't think that's, uh, you know, um, necessarily a, a indictment of, of Oregon's uh, coaches as developers. I just think that it's just at a point right now where Anthony Brown's still probably the better quarterback. Yeah, and... When it comes to decisions like that, you, you want to be able to put trust in the coaching staff and trust in Cristobal and, and trust in Joe Moorhead, who came out um, and pretty much squashed all uh, rumors of a quarterback change. And yeah. I think it's it's a pretty good position to be in. If if you're going to be struggling a little bit with quarterback play, it's if it's not quite where you want it to be, to be 5-1 and one at the midway point, top 10 team i think it's really all you can ask for yeah you could be washington state Man, oh what a mess <laughs> like oh so for people who haven't been paying attention washington state head coach nick rolovich is no longer washington state's head coach he declined to get the vaccine he didn't get his religious exemption the cougars fired him on tuesday or on monday and uh now it's just a big old hot mess for a football team that actually wasn't playing that bad this year. Uh, like, how do, do you think there's any chance that locker room even pulls together through this? I, I mean, I don't see it happening. I think that's. I think you mentioned this on a previous episode that they have one of the the lowest budgets in the country, and and that and as we discussed, that really lowers their margin for error, and as a football coach, you always preach, eliminate the distractions, only focus on the guys who are in our meeting rooms, who are in control of our own destiny. Um, and I think not only to have the the controversy and the stories about him for the last couple months when it comes to the vaccination topic, um, but but to have him out mid-season right as you're starting to play some good football is, is just horrible. I mean, or, or Oregon State's got to be kicking itself at this point, right? Like, they, they lost that game against a team that's in the middle of a, a, just a shitstorm, uh, <laughs> to, to be frank. Um, and yet, here, you know, that it's th- this week coming up is huge for Oregon State, too, because they're 4-2 they're and two and they're playing Utah at home. And, and Utah, surprise, surprise, is a, a pretty decently good and consistent Pac-12 team again. And so... Um, you know, it, it kind of looks like Washington State's going to be out of that Pac-12 North race, but it's uh, it's certainly going to be, I think it's going to be pretty tight here coming into uh, November. Yeah, it's it's funny to see um, 
with Utah improving again, it feels like the Pac-12 just it usually eats itself alive every year, but it, it usually waits until about this time to do it. So it's, it feels like it's a bit of a free-for-all right now with uh, some of the programs that uh, are traditionally really good struggling. And then conversely, that's that becomes kind of a tough thing later on where you have a program that you know is a good program like Utah, and you think they're maybe having a down year, and then they get hot, have a good two- or three-week stretch, and then that suddenly becomes a tougher game for you uh, coming into that one. Camden Lewis has hit all 43 of his kicks this year. Just, just throwing that out there. It's, it's an incredible turnaround. I think he, he had some real issues to start his career. And as a kicker, that could be really tough with your confidence, just because (laughs) you need to have good in-game reps to, to fall back on when you miss to, to build your confidence. And when you don't have that, it, it can get real tough just watching him is is he doing anything differently or do you think it was just straight up like a a between the years sort of thing yeah i think it's mostly mental i i think a lot of times when you get to the college and nfl level issues are mental and sometimes you'll miss kicks it might be because of a little thing with your technique but i think just having the right mindset and the confidence to to trust yourself when you swing through the ball is essential and if you don't have that that's going to cause you to make all sorts of mistakes what was what was the biggest funk you went through uh or or did or or were you just so damn good aiden that you just didn't you just didn't struggle i mean that that could be the case too i'm glad you said it for me no i'm just kidding (laughs) one stat that i'm really proud of is that i never missed two consecutive kicks in my career and that was something that i really prided myself on was realizing that you're going to miss some kicks and you don't always have to analyze every little bit of film and figure out why sometimes you just have a bad day and you throw it away. But the thing that, that really was hard for me was after getting a lot of attempts, my freshman and sophomore year, as a junior, we were a much worse team. And so I had 12 attempts over the season. um, But five of those came in one game. So I had seven spread out over the other 11 games. And that was a real challenge mentally because I was so used to getting in the game early for a couple extra points, really getting a rhythm down and then not having that. It can be tough to be sitting on the sideline for an hour, hour and a half of real time before you have to go out and attempt to kick. Do you know how in games, like if it's, if it's like fourth and short and you'll see it on TV a lot, you'll see like the quarterback being like, coach, let's go for this. And like everyone gets all jazzed up because they're all like rearing to go. Like, has there ever been a situation where like the court or where the kicker on the sidelines like, coach, no, like let's like, I, I can't imagine like the kicker can get everyone all excited to like kick the field goal in that situation. <laughs> it definitely does happen. Uh, <laughs> coach's ears. I just don't think a camera has ever captured it. That's probably what. Oh, really? It, it, so it, it does happen. Yeah, uh, I mean, it it just depends on the kicker's personality and your relationship with the coach. That wasn't really something that happened with me much, especially because I knew Oregon <laughs> for years was not into kicking long field goals. But um, you know, it's always good to advocate for yourself a little bit. What uh, what, what's the longest that you hit in practice? Uh, probably fifty five, fifty six, something like that. Because because Camden just hit forty nine, which did was that equal your forty nine was year long, wasn't it, or did that eclipse it? It eclipsed it. Um, but they 
they, they didn't let you attempt anything longer than that, did they? No. So I hit 47 a couple of times. And it's, it's funny because I was sitting next to my brother in the stands at that game. And we were like, no way they're kicking this. <laughs> and, then, and then he did. And I was like, damn, he, he's got me already. But that was a great moment he, for him. He, yeah, he, he got a pretty clean, clean look. I, I, was, I was watching the replay on TV yesterday. And I think that would have been clear from uh, maybe at least five, ten more yards. But And, and then the clip running away, uh, man, Camden doesn't skip leg day. Or, actually, that's another question I wanted to ask you since it's this kicker Q&A now. Like, why wouldn't you just do leg day every day in the gym? Like, like, like take me take me through how, how you build up a kicker's uh, body for uh, college football. Well, it's this might surprise people, but lifting as a kicker is not all that different. So you, you generally do the same lifts as the team. You know, you do some extra um, – extra flexibility and mobility stuff, but really, really to kick being an athlete overall, um, being strong in your whole body and then being ex- explosive helps a lot. Cause it's not just your pure leg strength that causes you to be able to kick far. Otherwise you'd get, <laughs> you probably get Thibodeau kicking it off out of the back of the end zone, <laughs> but it's, it's really a combination of, of technique, strength and speed. Um, and so there, there are a lot of balance and mobility exercises that really help with that. But outside of that, it's it's pretty traditional strength training. Well, it's 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 interesting because we have we have Seth Wickersham coming up, for, uh, the author of the book "It's Better to Be Feared: uh, The New England Patriots Dynasty." Um, he covered Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, and that entire era of of the Patriots. And I'm pretty sure the first kicker I ever really remembered watching was Adam Vinatieri, and, and from those New England teams, I, I imagine it's probably similar for you as well. Yeah, and uh, funny enough, I, I was always aware of Vinatieri, but right when I started getting into football was shortly after Justin Tucker got into the league. So that was that was the guy I really watched kind of from day one, and and to see what he's been able to do as an undrafted free agent is is insane. I mean, I I think he's earned the goat status already personally. Well, that's going to do it for Aiden and I today. Uh, but coming up next, we have my interview with Seth Wickersham from ESPN. Hey, and we now welcome on Seth Wickersham, senior writer for ESPN, the magazine, and author of It's Better Be Feared, The New England Patriots Dynasty and the Pursuit of Greatness. And Seth, thanks for coming on this morning. It's, uh, it's a little bit early out here, but East Coast time, I guess that's good living for Alaska boy. I know anything. Anything to to talk shop with another Alaska kid. <laughs> well, I I, I want to get into the book, but before we do that, I'm mostly I'm just curious as how someone from Service High School in Anchorage, Alaska, which um, if it was anything like Palmer High School football, had pretty poor high school quarterback play. Uh, how does someone go from Alaska to end up being kind of at the center of the Patriots dynasty and, and deciding that that's going to be kind of the niche you carve out in your career? Well, not only that, I was part of that poor quarterback play for service <laughs> high school, you know, having played quarterback a little bit there. But um, uh, it's a great question. And I mean, you know, we could go as long or as little as you wanted. But it was interesting because like when I was in high school at service, I always just did newspaper and I, I, I wrote for the school paper for three years. And this is really embarrassing, but I actually lettered in newspaper before I lettered in athletics which was, you know, not something to brag about. Um, I actually think that I didn't get a letter jacket until I had lettered in sports just because I couldn't 
you know, walk around <laughs> school wearing a leather letter jacket for newspaper. But, you know, you know how it is when you when you grow up in Alaska, you at least, you know, really before the Internet got going, you know, you were just disconnected from the country. And I would subscribe to Sports Illustrated and to the Sporting News and to Time and Newsweek. And when you'd get the magazines, they were more than a week old. So when you'd read them, you kind of read them looking for something more than what most readers did. You know, you read the stories looking for kind of a timelessness to them. And so I think I kind of grew up thinking that, um, you know, that's how journalism was. And, you know, you, you, you cover these games or these people, sure, but when you're um, writing about them, you want the story to feel vibrant even way after its its supposed due date, right? So I, when I when I decided that I wanted to do journalism for a career and I went to the University of Missouri, um, that was kind of just the mentality that I had is that I just wanted to write stories that that kind of had that magazine quality to them. And I was um, fortunate to get hired at ESPN when I graduated from college. Um, and one of my very first assignments was going to Foxborough, Massachusetts in November of 2001 to interview this guy who was filling in well for Drew Bledsoe. <laughs> and, you know, everyone figured he'd go to the bench at the end of the year, Tom Brady. Now remember he had like a gray sweatsuit on and his backpack, you know, backpack and it was full of beer because he had lost a bet <laughs> in the Michigan, Michigan state game. But, you know, that's kind of where it started. And then the Patriots dominance, you know, tr spanned two decades. And so because of that, I just ended up covering them a lot. I was, you know, with Tom Brady at his house and his Super Bowl parties. And I had late night conversations with Bill Belichick. And as an investigative reporter at ESPN, I just got to know people around the league and people within the Patriots building. And so when the publisher came to me and asked if I was interested in doing this, I guess I was like, I never thought about it, but I guess I was like, you know, I'm sitting on a lot of material. So you, you say that the publisher came to you, but I, I imagine when you're covering that era, like you're probably putting stuff aside of like, this is probably a book, like at some point, like I'm covering the, the biggest dynasty in football history. Like in the book, you talked about like, there was like a trigger clause of, of whether, you know, when, when Belichick retires or Brady leaves, like that's when kind of your clock started writing the book. I, I'm curious, did you do the majority of your reporting once you started doing the book or were you pulling from kind of like years of your reporting and, and relationships? Yeah, it was both. I mean, it is funny because it's like I should have thought that they would make a good book, <laughs> but it's kind of embarrassing. I it never occurred to me, you know, well, I, I guess that's that's me being just around the Internet all the time, you know, maybe a little bit of a separate, you know, you just go like, oh, you know, like the, the Jordan rules was like the Bulls dynasty book. And then you, I yeah. just figure that every every, every dynasty is going to end up having one of those. Yeah, I just I it never really occurred to me. But, you know, if there's a lesson in it, it's just like never throw away a notebook because I never did. I've got boxes of, of material from all of my stories over the years. And I just I felt like that I had when you write a magazine story, even if you're writing a cover story on Tom Brady or whatever, you know, you you don't end up quoting them on most of the things that they say. In fact, you usually only end up using like maybe 10, 15 percent. And I felt like that I just had this material that looked differently with the passage of time, right? I mean, just things that Tom Brady would say about himself in 2001, you know, saying, you know, football has really always come really easy for me. You know, you're at the 2001, you're like, who's this cat saying this? 
And then now you're like, oh my gosh, he knew, <laughs> you know, and he, he was right. And so I felt like I just had a ton of things like that. And then I was able to go out and report the pieces of the dynasty that I didn't know as well. And that's, you know, that's kind of what I did. Talking about those early Tom Brady years, you know, you you talk, you write in the book that you you guys are similar age and you were also kind of coming into your careers at, at the same moment. Moment, like when did you kind of feel it diverge into like this guy's in a completely different stratosphere in, in terms of just like fame and and just who yeah. he is? Yeah, that very first time that we met, we did feel like you know he was asking me all these questions about Missouri and you know <laughs> it did feel like that we were kind of like the same species right and that was in November of 2001 so when did that change i would say february of 2002 when he was named <laughs> super bowl mvp and he was on the cover of people magazine um you know i think that his fame just exploded and and i would see him periodically during 2002 but the next time i really spent time with him was in 2000 three when they were you know winning games and on their way to winning their second super bowl together and it was really then that i was like getting to talk to him up close i, I was up there i spent two days with him for a story and when i was up there doing that i was like you know his life is just different and he's and it was an adjustment to come you know one of the things i write about a lot in the book was fame and how he adjusted to fame and that it was harder than people knew. And, you know, people were driving, you know, people were following him home or he felt like that he worried that people were following home, his home, him home, which was the same thing. And he would take these like paths that try to shake cars and someone broke into his house at one point. And it was interesting because at one point he was so frustrated and Brady used to be this way. I don't think he's this way anymore, but he used to be kind of a whiner. And he was, he, when he was in Michigan, he got to know this counselor named Greg Harden very well. And he kept talking to him and confiding in him even after he left Michigan. And at one point during 2003, he was talking to Greg Harden. He was just whining about fame. And he's like, all these things I can't do, all these places he can't go. And Greg Harden starts laughing at him. <laughs> and he's just like, man, you're telling me that you want to be the best at what you do, but you don't want to deal with these like things that will only last for a specific period of time. Like he was like, you're the hot cookie right now. You can call up a kid and change his life in five minutes. So do that because you're not going to be the hot cookie forever. As it turns out, Tom Brady's the hottest cookie that ever existed. <laughs> what? How would this book be different if it was a biography of just Tom Brady versus like the whole scope of being the Patriots? I, I thought of this about this a lot when I was reading um, Jeff Perlman's last book on the Lakers, because mm -hmm. it's there's so many dynamic personalities in there where like you're, it could have been a full Kobe profile. It could have been a full Shaq book. Like, how do you kind of blend those? So it's it's kind of you have equal parts. Yeah, I, I, I really just thought that there was no Patriot way. It was two very special men, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, whose lives intersected at a moment when they absolutely needed each other. And both of them kind of understood the fragility of the profession that they wanted to go in. You know, you had Bill Belichick who had his, his life annihilated in Cleveland and had to wait five years to get another chance. And you had Tom Brady who nearly went undrafted. And so they, they both kind of came to each other at this exact time. And even though they are very different people, they shared a lot of traits. And so I felt like that even when I was writing about Belichick, in some ways I was writing about Brady because 
knowing how it ends, you're able to go back and look at these moments where maybe there were small but pre-existing divides that helped explain why Tom finally walked away. In uh, in, in the early part of, parts of your book, I was pretty, because I, I wasn't aware of this, but it seems like Mike Riley might be the most unluckiest character in, in the, uh, which applies to Oregon audiences here because it's such yeah. a sliding doors because if he ends up getting Brady when he's with the Chargers back then, maybe he doesn't come back and, and run the Oregon State organization for 10. Is he the most unluckiest character outside of the people that Brady actually beat? <laughs> in, in the Tom Brady story. Well, and Brady beat him. That was the, it was just a Shakespearean tragedy. So you had Mike Riley who spotted the, the talent in Tom Brady really before anybody else did. He was an assistant coach at USC. His job was to scout the Bay area and he found Tom Brady and he was on him. Finally, recruiting time comes and John Robinson, the head coach at USC wants a quarterback out of Chicago. Instead, this guy, you know, didn't even spend four years on the team as it turns out but they dropped Brady. So Riley was just devastated. He actually ended up flying up to California to deliver the news in person. So fast forward five years, they bump into each other at the combine. Tom Brady is, is, you know, entering the league and Mike Riley is the head coach of the San Diego chargers. And he says, I missed on you once. I will not miss on you again. And he sent an assistant coach to go to Michigan and, you know, investigate Tom Brady to make sure that he was everything that the coach believed. Finally, draft day comes around. The sixth round comes around. Bobby Beathard, the GM, is like, we're going to draft a quarterback late. Who do you want? And Riley says, I want Tom Brady. Bobby Beathard's like, all right. And Riley's like, oh, my God, thank God, finally. And then Bobby Beathard comes back 20 minutes later, he watched 20 minutes of Brady's film, felt like he wasn't that special. He goes with the linebacker instead. And then fast forward a year, the San Diego Chargers are ahead by 10 points in the fourth quarter. I'm sorry, seven points in the fourth quarter against the New England Patriots. Tom Brady is making one of his first starts. And Brady ends up rallying the Patriots for the first time in the fourth quarter to a, to a win. And they've won in overtime. So it just was like cosmically unfair that Mike Riley, who was the one person who spotted the genius in Tom Brady, ended up being his first victim in the fourth quarter. Well, and, and, and Riley's such a like a nice and aw shucks personality, too. It just kind of almost not seemed fitting because Riley was a fantastic football coach. But it just it just seems like that could have been like the one separator in, in that guy's. Or, or, or do you think Tom Brady would have? Because there's so many instances in those early years with the Patriots that kind of led to like his ascension. Like, do you think that he would have had that success had he gone somewhere else, like right out of the gates? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think he would have been successful. I don't know if they would have won, you know, become a dynasty. You know, I just I don't know if the Chargers were built for that. And, you know, but it is one of those strange what ifs. And, you know, Brady. You know, in the early part of his career, it was interesting because people would ask him, like, hey, if you had been drafted by the Arizona Cardinals, what would have happened? And, you know, Brady would say stuff like, you know, I might not even be in the league right now, which was really interesting, you know, given where he is now. <laughs> like, there was one time that I asked Tom Brady, I was in his living room, and I asked him, like, do you ever think about all these kind of random things that happened that helped um, – you know, get you to where you were and how these little things might have gone differently, like maybe you wouldn't have been here. So I essentially asked him the same thing. And at that point, he's in his mid 30s. 
And he kind of like tilted his head back and he was like, well, and I was like, did I offend you with that question? Because I was kind of insinuating that there was luck involved. And he was like, no, 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 I'm not offended by anything. You know, he's like, maybe things could have been different. But at the end of the day, I made my choices and they made theirs and things worked out as they worked out. So I thought that evolution on that kind of question was interesting. You went from Tom Brady realizing how fragile his profession was to kind of knowing that he belonged in a very big way. When, when you've covered a dynasty like that and you're putting it all into a book and, and it's something that is, is a large part of, of your career with it. I mean, you're kind of packaging in like that, that era of, of yourself. What's book excerpt week like when, when it first kind of starts coming out and people are first starting to sample your work and like, and it's, it's just like, it's, and usually it's the most juicy, like the, you know, the most juicy stuff out there. Like what's, what's that like when people are, are first sampling, like what you've put so much effort into? Yeah, it was interesting. So it was before the Patriots played the Bucks. You know, we put out a newser on ESPN.com that sort of had, you know, five or six of the kind of juicy things in the book. And, you know, that really took off. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> and so, you know, there were some cuss words in there and some arguments and some fights and a near fist fight. And, you know, that really took off. And, you know, that's just it's cool because. As a, as a writer, you just you write to be read. And even though the book is more than those arguments, you know, it's a book about the DNA of greatness and what the cost of that greatness is, you know, any chance you can talk about it, it's, it's super cool. At, at, at what point, because I mean, it's, half of the subject in, in, in this book is going to probably deny anything that happened to it. Like we've already seen that with Bill. That's just kind of his, his personality. Um, I mean, you're you're such a seasoned reporter, like, and and you you know how airtight your reporting is. But just how how do you kind of train yourself to not let that, as a journalist, like let that part kind of bother you or, or get to you or or just kind of like being confident in, in what you put out there. Yeah, well, I think when you become a journalist, one of the most interesting things you learn how to do is to not take anything personally, because it's kind of a weird job, right? I mean, we're kind of invading space that's not ours and learning everything we possibly can about it. And, you know, I've been an investigative reporter for years now, and I've been through this before. What happens is that, you know, people come out and they call you fake news or they deny this or they deny that. And then as time pans out, your reporting not only gets confirmed by subsequent events, but often people find out that some of these problems were worse than anybody knew. And I've been through this with many teams. I've been through it with the Patriots. I mean, 2017, I write a story on Tom Brady and the TV 12 method. And I have a paragraph in there about that. There's a collision coming in the building between Alex Guerrero, his business partner and Bill Belichick over the, the way that they're kind of pitting the team doctors against the TV 12 training staff. And Belichick called me fake news. And a month later, the Boston Globe broke a story that Belichick had banned Alex Guerrero from parts of the building. And then was it a couple months later, 2018, I end up writing this story about some of the problems in the building, you know, with Guerrero and Jimmy Garoppolo and Tom Brady wanting to play until he was 45 and the Patriots kind of wanting to be year by year. And the Patriots released a statement <laughs> saying, you know, that they stood united. And then they didn't even last two weeks. Robert Kraft was out there <laughs> talking about the tension and he wanted later wanted credit for solving it. <laughs> and, you know, in the offseason program, Brady ends up skipping the entire offseason and uh, the voluntary offseason. And he says, you know, I plead the fifth when 
um, asked if he felt appreciated by the team. And, and he asked Robert Kraft at one point, basically asked him for his release. And Robert Kraft said no, <laughs> because they had just traded Jimmy Garoppolo and they felt like they were invested in Tom Brady. And then Kraft ends up changing his mind, but then Brady changed his mind too. And they all kind of figured out a way to make it work. But I think as a reporter, you just sort of, the best thing that ESPN's given me is that there's just no deadline. You know, you work on stories and they run when they're ready. And I think that when you do that, um, you just feel very confident in the process and in your reporting. And you know that even though there might be, you know, some some blowback, it fades quickly. And, and ultimately, your, your reporting gets borne out. It was Is there, um, you know, we just talked about the excerpts, but is, is there like a section or a chapter or a part of that book that might not grab any headlines that that was just like particularly enjoyable to write and report and to kind of like tell that part of the story? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for asking that. Yeah, the middle part, you know, so I divide the book into three parts. You really have the first part of the dynasty that, you know, I, I go through 2000 to 2001 to 2006, really. And then... 2007 to midway through the third quarter of the playoff game against the Ravens in 2015 is the middle part of the book. And I really loved that part because you have Spygate and what that meant. You have the undefeated season that, you know, collapsed in the final seconds of the Super Bowl. And finally, you have like two very high achievers who had plateaued at a very high level but they had plateaued nonetheless. And they were kind of trying to reevaluate their own belief systems that had worked better than almost any in NFL history to try to figure out a way to get over that edge. Cause they were just coming up short of the Super Bowl championship by like, you know, a slimming inch of an Eli Manning pass. And so, but they had to figure out a way through that. And that's really where you see Brady developing his own TB12 method and becoming evangelical about it. And you have Belichick becoming more resourceful than ever and finally deploying those, the Baltimore and the Raven formations in that famous playoff game um, where they really kind of reignited the dynasty against the Baltimore Ravens. And so I really enjoyed that part of it because I felt like that readers just don't know what it's like to plateau at that level. And I wanted to try to show that as best I could to, sh to make them appreciate what happened after that and all of the subsequent Super Bowls. Did you ever get a, an Anchorage Daily News byline? Huh, yeah. That, that, so that's, I, that's, that's been my, my white whale. I, I interned for the, uh, like the Frontiersman for a few years every time I would come, come back home. But, uh, you know, never, never got to fully rub sh shoulders with the Doyle Woodies and, and Beth Braggs of the world. <laughs> and they were so cool, you know, and um, I, so I interned at the Daily News one summer and, and I, I, I would work there during the day. And then at night I would work at Channel 11 because I didn't know whether I wanted to do TV or print. And so, you know, it was a busy summer and it was fun. I think that what was it? It was after my first year at Missouri that I that I did that. And, um, you know. I love the Anchorage Daily News and I still have newspapers. You know, I played football and we won the state championship at my senior year. I still have all the press clippings, you know, from that time. And um, I felt like that Beth Bragg and Doyle Woody and Van Williams and, and Matt Nevola were really 
helpful to me in my career because I was young, you know, whatever, 19 years old, whatever I was. And but they helped me develop a voice even then. And I thought that was just really cool of them to do that because they could have been like, guy, you don't know shit. (laughs) Go write about this and turn it in. And that's that. And instead, they were just really encouraging of me trying to, like, you know, tell stories in a little bit of a different way. You know, it was just it it was really important at that point in your career because, you you know, your impressions at that point are like you're wondering, can you do this? You know, and the fact that they showed me that confidence was a big deal. I'm I'm glad you said the voice thing, because I I read obviously I was a big hockey fan growing up. So I I read a lot of Doyle's coverage, whether it was when he was doing UAA or with the Aces, which I mean, for people outside the state, like the Aces were treated like, you know, royalty up there for for a couple a couple a couple different periods. But like. It could be a pretty bad scene for a sports writer, and I always enjoyed their writing because it, it felt like it had kind of like that voice or a little bit of like just sort of differentiation around it. Because otherwise, I mean, there's there's not a whole lot of variety. I mean, of of readable variety in in that state to cover, unless it's unless it's just like completely off the beaten path sort of thing. No, I mean they, it was a well written newspaper, you know. And Lou Friedman was the feature writer, yep. and that guy was a fantastic writer, won so many awards, I, and. You know, it was at the time you don't really realize, you know, you're just like, okay, am I going to be able to be a journalist and can I get an internship? And once I'm at the internship, can I actually do a story? (laughs) And, you know, I look back at those moments and they're just really key moments during the course of my career because, you know, they treated me with such respect and confidence that like it really gave me a lot of confidence that I could do this. How's uh, how's the skiing out in Connecticut? <laughs> we have to go there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like I go heli skiing in Alaska and you know, it's just unbelievable. And you know, it's just, you can't even get that anywhere else almost in the world. And I come back here and I'm on these little lumps with my kids, you know, but it's fresh air, I guess, and you're moving downhill, so it's all kind of fun. But, um, you know, when you learn how to ski in Alaska and then you go to you, you live in a place like Connecticut, it's it's definitely a drop off, both literally and figuratively speaking. <laughs> uh, that last one I have for you, um, like, could you write a book about Manning? Peyton? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I think that Peyton's a little bit different in the sense that, um, you know, so much of what he did was was inside his head and belichick actually figured out ways to use that brilliance against him he had so much respect for peyton manning and especially when the patriots were dominating the colts early in the dynasty one of the things they would do is is the defense would essentially part ways and let peyton call running plays up the middle and let him do it forever daring him almost to call running plays up the middle, knowing that someone as smart as Peyton would get bored doing that. And then once he called a pass or something else, he would fall right into a trap. And so I think that the, the chess game there was with Peyton was phenomenal. And, um, you know, I mean, Peyton could definitely be a book. I'm not itching to do it at the moment, but you know, you just look at his place in the game and the entire legacy of his family. I mean, it's just really special. Well, All that said, can you imagine being Peyton Manning last year in the Super Bowl? He's at the stadium as part of the coming Hall of Fame class, and he's watching Tom Brady win a seventh Super Bowl yeah. 
Tom Brady has had a Hall of Fame career since Peyton Manning retired. Can you imagine, Tom, you know, Peyton Manning watching that? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. Do, do, do you think Brady goes like the the hosting something route when he's done? Kind of like what Peyton and Eli are doing now? Like, like could you see see something like that? I don't know. You know, I think he's different. I just think that, like, with Brady, the the trajectory he's going just seems like it's more global elite than football insider. Right. You know, and I don't, I don't know for sure, but it just seems like that what he wants to do is take his TB12 business worldwide and kind of, you know, be one of these kind of global brands that goes beyond the game. But I, I don't know. We'll see. Well, hey, man, I... Uh whenever i'm commuting because i live in portland and when i commute down to eugene i'm always listening to books on tape and and i downloaded yours about a about a week ago now and i'm three quarters of the way through and it's it's just it's been excellent like it's the the, the guy who did it on tape is is fantastic at it as well um it's really enjoyable i would encourage everyone to pick it up it's uh it's better to be feared the new england patriots dynasty in the pursuit of greatness he's seth wickersham thanks so much for for coming on this morning seth my pleasure man thank you You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider.